We are happy to announce that this episode of the SW Show is partially brought to you by Humble Bundle. Well, not, not really. We are part of the Humble Bundle referral program, and we just wanted to say that if you like really cheap games and maybe helping charity pending the Humble thing going on, all you have to do is go to humblebundle.com forward slash question mark partner equals SWW. That's right. Humblebundle.com forward slash question mark partner equals SWW. And you just do your normal stuff and it just kind of helps us get a couple bucks here and there. Maybe it helps AJ go about his lights. Maybe it's my camera. Maybe we actually pay Corey for helping us out. But again, if you're going to go buy games anyway, it might be worth checking out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to one of these interview episodes of the SWW Show. I'm Mike, and today with me a very special guest that I'm sure a lot of people at least heard of him or his work. To get us started, do you mind introducing yourself and the game we're here to talk about? Sure. I am Sam Barlow. I'm a uh, game director and writer, and uh, we just released uh, my latest game, Immortality which came out on the 30th of August. Yeah, you must be in that fun um, moment right now, Sam, of, like, that, like, post-launch, so it's, like, super busy from, like, interviews or press or stuff, but, like, that, like, malaise of afterwards, you're like, okay, thank God. Like, it's calm-ish. Like, I'm hoping there's It's, it's kind of there. We have, uh, we have a, a mobile version that's coming out on, on Netflix games, which... We're in the closing stages of like final testing and stuff. Once once that's out, then I I plan to sleep for a while. But yeah, it's definitely yeah. I mean, it's it's such a weird thing putting a game out because you kind of work on it for years, mostly in privacy, and it's a lot of work, and you get very obsessive. And then, I mean, it's even weirder now because we're in this kind of semi-post-COVID, still covid world, because it kind of, at least before you would, you'd sort of, as you got closer to launch, you would sort of go to shows and things and and you'd see real people playing your game and it would kind of confirm that the, the game existed and this was not all just a hallucination. But now, like with this game, you know, we just press the green button and launch it and it's it's just out there and people are playing it and claiming to have played it on the internet and things, but it's, you don't quite have that like moment where it's, it feels real. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, there's no kind of big, exciting, cathartic release. It just kind of slowly you start to relax because you're like, it's out. People like it. You know, I think we've, we've caught any small weird bugs and, you know, you, you slowly start to relax, but it's, it's a strange life. I appreciate how we're talking about a game here that that is, like, extremely highly related on Steam, and you're like, I think a few people played it and might have liked it, and, and, it, and I think that's kind of... But I do appreciate there's a level of, like, you're still like, I, I just don't know if it's real. Like, it's just here. Some of you were there. Well, this, I, mean, I mean, this... Yeah, with this one, like, the reception has been fantastic. I, I think, technically, like, the best received of anything I've done. And But again, it's like, it's... And you, you have this weird thing because it's it's so stressful like i i worked on kind of bigger games for publishers and stuff before i went indie 
And so for the first 10 plus years of my career, I would never ship a game. Like as a, as a lead designer or a director, kind of once the game was ready to be put into final submission, which, you know, back then we used to have to courier discs and stuff. Usually because I'm like the creative or whatever, that they pull me off and start in another project because all that's left to do is like fix some bugs and stuff. So, you know, I managed to kind of do all that without having been, you know, intimately involved in that final stage of shipping the game. Um, and, and so then when I went indie and you do all these things digitally, just being involved in the minutia of all that stuff, it's so stressful, so stressful when you push the button and and you're just waiting like am i going to bring down the whole of itunes right or am i going to like break somebody's computer or whatever and and so you get the reception so like in the case of immortality right you read some of the reviews and you're like oh wow this is cool like people are getting what we did it's it's exciting uh you know it's 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 for a moment it's like nipping on the heels of elden ring which is extremely surreal but then you'll get like one buggy bug mail so you have all this kind of abstract stuff of like people liking it but then you'll get like a specific email from someone that's like, hey, I paid money for your game. And for some reason, it's like not installing on my blah, blah, blah. Or like it's, it's, it's this weird thing is happening on my particular setup. And suddenly you feel like you've let this individual, it feels so much more real, right? I think as humans as well, we're kind of attuned to dangerous, stressful things. So, so you're like, I have all this kind of abstract stuff of people liking it and, and Metacritic scores and things, but then you've got like the email from a real person being like, fix the game now. And suddenly you're like, oh my God, this is the worst thing. Uh, and, you know, so you're, you're kind of trying to, your brain's trying to hold all this together in one place. So yeah, it's I think the worst thing. is when someone sends those emails and it's a bug you can't replicate because you have to go back to the person. You're like, can you please, with better details, explain to me this problem you have? <laughs> because it's, I don't see it's it. It's so... It's so hard because um, I think someone made this point and I reiterated it recently, but you know, you, you'll, you'll see people on forums sort of being like, Oh my God, lazy devs or whatever. Right. Did they even test this thing? Uh, for whatever the game is, right. Whether it's, you know, Zelda or some small indie thing. So like we pay uh, for highly qualified professionals to go test the game. And there's a budget question of like, well, how many hours are you going to pay for? Right. And obviously you could, there's an infinite amount of money you could put into the test. But so let's say you say, well, look, we, you know, we're at an indie game. Uh, we're going to budget, let's say 2000 hours, right? We're going to have 2000 hours of testing, which is quite a few hours, right? That's a lot of hours. Um, you release the game. So in the first week, I think on uh, first week of release for immortality, uh, it clocked up uh, something like 25 years of playtime. Because, you know, just which once it goes out there and there's people playing it, right? Yeah, that's, which is roughly like, yeah, there's like, God, that is a it's, lot. It's a lot. It's a lot of hours. So, so so instantly, like the second it actually goes live, like you're inevitably going to find things or you're going to find somebody's computer set up or just it's, you know, some, who knows? Like, I mean, we've had so many weird things on, on previous games of like, oh, this, if, if you have uh, Windows but your hardware is set to you know, Brazilian Portuguese and your system clock is set to this thing. For some reason, this plugin like fails invisibly. And so then 10 hours into the game, a strange thing happens. 
And right, so you, like you say, you'll get someone say, "Hey, this strange thing happened in my game," and you'll be like, "Okay, send me your, you know, your graphics card, and if you have any logs and stuff." And you know, it's only when you get the fifth bug that's just that's also in uh, Brazilian Portuguese or something that suddenly you're like, "Hang on a minute," and and you try and figure it out. But yeah, it's it's I'm so jealous of uh, friends that like write books or make movies. Because obviously they're both extremely complicated things to do, but I, I imagine once you've finished your movie and you know it's done, right? And you've watched it, and it's there, and it's like ninety minutes. It's it's done. The mix is finished. That's what the movie looks like. I guess the worst that can happen, uh, which used to like terrify Kubrick, is you know somewhat there's a there's a bad projectionist who who screws up the bulbs or you know something could be slightly off the the dark balance or something who knows but um at least you know it's kind of there but yeah you put out a video game and it, it just has to be an interface with all this extremely complicated technology out in the world it's a trip yeah no that that's valid actually i was i was in, in a few years ago at a press screening and i'm not gonna say a movie but but like that's exactly what happened is there was a mess up we saw the first 10 minutes it was the audio was being messed up and they restart the film and i physically for that film could see the Chicago reviewers have like a one point average lower score than the rest of the nation. Oh wow! Because that was all the reviews. Right, this one press release for the film, and it got messed up. And it was a very interesting. Like you could see that actually happened. So yeah, that's a very interesting kind of concern. But I said, saw the the most surreal thing. I not the most. I'm exaggerating. Uh, I saw a, a live version of they showed there will be blood, but it was with um with a live score. So they had an orchestra. Um, I think it was the the LCO who were fantastic. Uh, it had this live score, obviously a beautiful experience. Um, but I guess in the mastering to to do these kind of live orchestral things, you basically get a a print of the film in which the music track has been turned off, right? So that you know the music is all live. So in that movie, two thirds the way through, there is an important scene where somebody shoots somebody else with a gun. Now. In in mastering the live orchestral version, somehow somebody screwed up and omitted the gun sound effect from this live oh, no. performance. So at this key, st- I mean, it was fascinating to see in the moment because you realised that without the sound effect, the, the way it was cut, like it wasn't completely obvious the gun had gone off. So you suddenly had all these people being like, "Wait a minute, did the gun actually go off?" I tried when I saw this movie before. Did the gun go off? What's ha- and it like killed like it? It just created so much confusion. This one missing sound effect. Um, so yeah, it is. I guess yeah, there are there are ways in which you can uh, damage the performance of a film. But yeah, interesting stuff. But yeah, so as we just kind of entered it. So just so people who don't know who you are in the game, we'll talk about as we we'll jump into it. Actually, so as you said, you're Sam Barlow. I think. I think. The thing that I first heard you from, I think, a few years ago, is her story. But obviously, you've had a career before then of working on on British Silent Hills, um, some other stuff. So, so let's kind of jump into. It. So, as we talk about immortality, and I think what I wanted to talk about today is that you've really walked into since her story this really interesting space that I think all of us thought was basically dead of FMV games. And I'm, I'm kind of curious, or at least not dead, but like super small, right? This, this thing that just didn't exist in any, in any mask pass anymore. Kind of, 
are are you shocked in the way of how well received that your stuff has been for for a genre that seems to have been like vanished over the last like fifteen years? I was definitely shocked, but not necessarily with the FMV thing. Because I mean, genuinely, when I made her story, uh, so I've been yeah making making quote unquote proper video games. Um, kind of realized I worked on this game for three years that was cancelled. And, and it was at a point, this was like 2013, 14 or something, point in the industry where, uh, you know, mobile free-to-play was was like disrupting everything. Publishers were terrified about whether or not people would buy the next generation of consoles. Single-player games are getting more and more expensive. So the publishers were basically, re- you know, deciding to not make as many of them. And, and as someone that was really interested in character-driven single-player games, I was like, eh. Uh, so I decided to try and make an indie video game. And that was her story. And so the impetus of her story was me going, well, here's a bunch of things that uh, I wanted to do or ideas that I've wanted to explore that I couldn't working in a, you know, a big-budget traditional video game. And you know, part of that was I wanted to do a kind of police procedural murder mystery story. Um, I wanted to, to play with the idea of, of detective mechanics. Uh, I wanted to do things with narrative in terms of uh, giving more freedom to the player, but kind of detaching the game from this idea that, you know, it's, it's kind of a choose your own adventure and you are the protagonist. Um, so I, I early on, was just doing a lot of thinking and researching about the idea of making a game about a police interview. That was kind of where I, I sort of focused on. And during this kind of process of doing a lot of research, like getting all the training manuals for like, how does one become a homicide detective? Uh, reading like kind of academic psychological studies of police interrogation, uh, watching all the famous movies about police interrogation, right? Whether that's Basic Instinct or Usual Suspects or, you know, going back to to various cop shows. Um, But one thing that I kind of really plugged into was at that time, there was this this rise that I think is now, you know, fully bedded in of a video everywhere, right? It was that, that generation of the internet was, oh, now we can stream video. YouTube is blowing up. People are doing vines, whatever. Like, it, you know, we're, we're streaming stuff from Netflix. Suddenly, there was this kind of ubiquity of video as a thing, and part of that was was me discovering in my research all these videos of police interviews that were online um, of, of real life interviews and interrogations. And I watched, you know, a lot of these. Uh, in that that kind of research phase, and and kind of became really, really interested in that texture. And at, at some point, kind of just woke up or went for a long walk, and my brain was like, "Hey, dude, why don't you make this police interview game, and and make it of police video? Like, actually, shoot some of these videos uh, because you know that's it, it's an aesthetic that is not ridiculously expensive." suddenly you'll get access to a genuine performance. And this was kind of, I think a key thing was that like coming from kind of essentially AAA, like I was used to at that point doing motion capture and performance capture. And as somebody that, you know, is trying to tell a story, character-based story, like you, you need characters in your game to do that. 
Uh, and I was kind of aware of, you know, there were indie games that were trying to solve that problem by, you know, Gone Home being like, it, it takes place in an empty house. And then at some point they still have to add voiceover because otherwise it's just lacking. So, you know, there were, so there were, I knew there were like solutions, but a lot of those solutions, it, it really felt like that was leading the story, right? If, if we don't have any characters on screen, then all of these stories take place in abandoned houses, abandoned towns. It's, you know, even like the Bioshock games and stuff kind of plugged into that traditionally. So, so instantly I was like, oh, well, this is kind of cool because I was worried about like, how am I going to, you know, render characters on screen if I don't have $5 million to spend? on motion capture to me like working with actors all the way back through like vo sessions to the performance capture was kind of an integral part of what i've been doing so so then really that was her story that kind of coalesced around that and i ended up making this game uh, that allowed you to explore hours of police interview footage and you know that that kind of set this loose idea of a a different take on the FMV game because it was, it was about kind of exploration of the video as a kind of archival thing. Um, but, but at that point I had not even thought about it being an FMV game. And I think the first time I took it to a show, uh, or maybe the last time I took it to a show as well, uh, I had a journalist come up and play the game. And then they asked me that question. They said, what on earth made you want to make an FMV game? Like this is, this genre is like a pariah you know, people kind of look at it as a, as a kind of funny, nostalgic thing. And that was the first time I'd actually gone, oh, crap, yeah, I guess I've made an FMV game. And then had to kind of run away and educate myself as to what, you know, what that genre was, what had happened, have an opinion on it. Um, and then, yeah, since then, you know, I did Telling Lies, now with Immortality. Each time, it, it hasn't been a given that I will go make another game that uses video but i think each time i've had interesting ideas of where to take it further and just the the luxury of being able to capture like a genuine human performance is is still like such a big thing like it, it still fe feels endlessly fascinating to me uh to kind of build a game where you have that level of connection to a character yeah, that's, that's very, I, I do find that story very interesting, how you accidentally, like, backed into the genre, and then, but, like, but, like, at the same time, that is, that is interesting, kind of, you're, like, like, now we have performance, because, like, obviously, games have shifted over the last decade, decade and a half, of, like, making them as real as possible, seeing all of the emotions, all of the human part of it, and now you're, like, I could just do that, right? Um... But I'm, I'm kind of curious, then, so now you have a different problem of, of you, you have engine problems, like everyone does in games, of, like, making it, making it work. That, But now you also have the people problem of, like, here are actors. We have to now, like, really direct them and really have them take good shots, and it's the lighting and all that. How has that been kind of, like, are you treating this kind of when you make these games like you would, like, more, like, as an indie, like, film set kind of? Like, here's our limitations, like... Like, how does that kind of work from, like, watching the budget on both the, the production side of the film part and the production side of the game part? It's it's very strange. Like, I get... Every now and then I'll I'll see, like, a friend, you know, set, set up an indie studio or something, and they'll be like, oh, we're hiring 20 to 30 people to go make this indie game. And I'm like, wow, how can they possibly afford that many people? That's incredible. And then I remember that, like, we went and shot three movies... So you, you have this, you know, we're a very small team, like three or four people plus a few 
kind of contractors uh, at some point. So like the core development team is very small. And then at some point you go shoot, you know, all the footage in one go. Um, and suddenly that ramps up and, and generally we're working with, with people we've worked with before, but it's, it's usually people that, you know, usually work on indie movies. So in, in a very loose way to them, they look, they go, okay, I'm going to book out four months to go shoot this. And, and, you know, the size of the crew, uh, the, the kind of budget level and stuff is, you know, equivalent to an indie movie. Um, and I mean, in terms of like the, Coming from games, it's quite, it's not, I was going to say it's quite, it's relaxing. It's not relaxing. Um, but there's this initial thing that's exciting because, so when I was uh, directing, so this, this the game that I was on for three years was this uh, reboot of Legacy of Cain. And so I was directing that for three years. And so, you know, that was a team of, I don't know, 100 people plus a bunch of external teams. and as the as the director of a game like that, your role as director, which I think is the same on a movie, say, is is to be the person that oversees everything, makes make sure there's consistency, make sure that the core, whatever the core aspect of the project is, is communicated so that it's kind of present and that everything works together, right? But on a game of that scale, it, it's exhausting because all the teams are in different places, kind of working separately, right? So there might be uh, a combat team that's working on the combat system. And then you have a level design team, and that's organized into a bunch of different teams for each area of the game. And then you have like the concept art team, and then you have the animation team that's liaising with level design and combat to create things. And, you know, then you have the, the code team that is creating game mechanics. And all of these things are at different stages of, of being finished, more exploratory. And at the same time, you're trying to write the story, right? As this is all happening. So you're kind of laying the train tracks as it's moving. And so really the, you know, to, to be a director in that situation, you have to find a way to be in most of those meetings, right? Or so that you're, you're popping in on all these little teams and making sure that it's all working together harmoniously. So it's very, you know, very, uh, high intensity and then when you're off on a film set as a director you then have this hierarchy because you're all looking at the same thing right at any given moment there's a single shot maybe there's two cameras but there's this you know essentially a single shot everybody there is focused on making that one shot work and they all have the same script that they're working to so they kind of all know like what is the point of this shot in the story we're telling and so as a director, to some extent, you're like, well, I know that the camera crew know what they're doing and the lighting people. And I know that like the, the, the art team are doing a set dressing and the production design know what they're doing and the costume team have, you know, are doing their thing. And you can kind of let everybody just get on with their extremely specialized, highly skilled job with the confidence that we're all kind of, you know, working on the same thing. So it's it's kind of so the, those the, you know that initial thing of stepping into this from being in video games is quite liberating because suddenly you can just kind of you can actually uh in some ways relax a little bit more um but then obviously you find ways certainly i do to make things complicated again but it's 
and and the the production cycle is very interesting because definitely the downside is coming from video games i am used to being extremely iterative so you know it could be we could be a week from shipping a game and i could change the color of a character's hat or i could move a light in a cutscene, right or change where the camera is or you know i could tweak a whole number of things at you know forever uh whereas when you're working with live action like once you get on set and you shoot something unless you're down for expensive reshoots or whatever then that's it right you've captured it and you know i think this the, the first time i was on set and uh the wardrobe person came up to me and had two i think it was hats something like hats had two hats and they were like we really need you to like finalize the choice of hat and the part of my brain just didn't get it i was like why are they, why is this so important to them that we choose this hat and then i'm like and it's obvious you know it's how dumb am i it's like it's, it's obvious what's important because it's like okay once we commit to this hat this is the hat for the whole thing right and uh so that's definitely a thing you know so we, we found on the various projects different ways to make sure that we've locked in the gameplay or figured out that these things will work before we then go and shoot everything and then we can't change things. Um, but, you know, they they both have their advantages. Yeah, I didn't even think of that. Like, like yeah, little stuff, like, especially coming from games, where it's like, okay, yeah, like, we shouldn't change things, but we all know we can or we all will without telling people. But, like, yeah, when, you, when you, most of your work is, it's a film, interactive film first. Like, you're like, no, this art direction is locked in. We can recolor stuff, but like that, it's locked in. It's it's funny when you look at the, I mean, you look at the problems Hollywood's having now with VFX, right? And with Marvel movies and everything where you do have these reshoots and where things do cost more money and take longer. Um, there was a, I, I think it was on one of the film websites like a few years back where they made this, this point that was fascinating to me because like in games, we know that games are always late. <laughs> like no game ever ships on time. Games always take longer. Uh, they always cost more money uh, because it's hard. Computers are hard. Plus, it is partly because you have this ability to iterate forever, which means that uh, you know maybe you know, publishers can continue to give you notes forever. It also means sometimes you might put off making choices or you're, you're allowed to put off making choices because you're like, oh, well, we'll wait and see how this works, right? Or we'll keep fiddling with this. I think Will Wright was famous for saying like The Sims was only fun two weeks out from launch. And he kept like telling telling people, Don't worry, it'll come together, don't worry, it'll come together. And it was literally at the last minute. So I think if you if you're in that world, things do tend to take longer. There's there's always waves of spending more time, more money. There are always things that end up needing to be fixed. And like historically, you didn't have this issue with movies. Historically, uh the worst thing that could happen is that, you know, a movie's going wrong movie's going bad, so you pull the director, parachute in the new director to just finish the whole thing up and put it out straight to DVD or whatever. Um, but at the point where Hollywood started to embrace this heavy use of CGI, suddenly you, you started to get all the game stuff coming and all those problems where people you know, would, would bid for the VFX or then budget for the VFX. And because it's computers and because it's iterative, it would always take longer and cost more money, right? And so suddenly, when you have a movie, like, I'm, I don't know, I, I imagine most Marvel movies probably don't even have a single shot 
where there's not CGI in it, right? Like, unless it's... Yeah, especially with, like, you know, Disney using the, whatever that is, the dome, whatever, whatever the, like, yeah. 3D tech is. Like, yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that one, that stuff, like, is them trying to fix this problem, right? Because if, you, if you're capturing it in camera, it's not a problem that you're punting to post, right? It's It's kind of the same as, like, building an elaborate set, I guess, in some ways. But... Yeah, if you if you're reliant on each shot needs to then go through CGI pros, you know some CGI, and you can always make the CGI better. And there's always experimental, cutting edge stuff happening in CGI. Um, but yeah, so it's it's you know we are seeing now the same labor issues, the same issues with budgeting and scheduling, really infesting like a lot of the mainstream movies because they've become much closer to to you know a video game problem yeah, that's, that's a, i think it's a very interesting yeah I, I didn't even think of like how like yeah the reason like we're seeing these these problems more than ever probably in film is because yeah they're becoming more like especially like half the time it's game tech people don't always realize like unreal is used on like a lot of films which would do people be like unreal engine like no it's it's a film tech a lot of times too and like it's these very fun interesting problems and i go back to i think i think you guys might have seen them secondhand kind of as they're happening just because of the nature of the work you've been working on and that, that that's a very kind of interesting thing that i'll be curious kind of like as the rest of the industry kind of adjusts or film industry adjusts kind of how those fix themselves it was i mean one of the things that was funny on this project because we're dealing with uh old-fashioned film tech so you know the the movie Ambrosia, it's part of Immortality from the late 60s. Like the the thing that's interesting about it is the director there is, uh, you know, analogous to a, a kind of late period Hitchcock or something. And they've come from this tradition of heavy use of, like, it's funny to look at it in retrospect because you know, everyone's like, oh my God, movies today, it's all CGI. It's, it's all fake. It's awful. But you look at like, the kind of uh, heyday of studio movies, and it was all fake. Like, it was painted backdrops. It was matte paintings. It was all sorts of, like, optical compositing, all sorts of tricks, like just just heavy, heavy use of these kind of quite theatrical um, cheats. But when when we were, like, exploring those on the set, it was so funny because, like, you'd have uh, members of the crew who, you know, have been working in, in movies for their whole life, but some of them, you know, started in a digital world. So they hadn't been experienced in, in pre-digital filming, uh, you know, when everything had to be optical and where a lot of these tricks were on set and, and camera. And so we would say things like, well, we're going to have this map painting. And in their minds, a map painting was, oh, you're going to rotoscope a character and then someone's going to come in and digitally paint stuff. And you've probably got a 3D model of this environment so the character can move, you know, around it. And we're like, no, 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 a matte painting is somebody paints on a piece of glass, sticks it in front of the camera, and if your character goes where they shouldn't, then suddenly their head disappears, right? Like, that's what we're talking about. And everyone got, like, really excited because they, you know, either had not done this for a while or had never got to, to do quite as much stuff that was, like, all the, all the fakery was on set and in camera. Um, and, I mean, we st- I think you still see that, right? Like, with The Mandalorian there was this whole thing of it being a real puppet that I think it was Werner Herzog claims to have been the one that insisted on that and just how much better that worked. And you see, you know, a lot of 
movies that will uh, like rebooting franchises and things where people remember the beauty of the original practical effects and then they'll you know if they do a version where it's all cgi it was like eh doesn't quite feel the same and i, I feel like we we definitely at the tipping point like the marvel movies where everyone is just getting a little bit tired of everything being so kind of effortless and cgi and just kind of miss that you know even if it doesn't always look completely real like you know, a lot of the practical effects, you know, have some charm to them. That's interesting. So with Immortality or any of your past or future works, did you ever thought of kind of switching to that, that more mass CGI look? Or did you think that there's some level of practicality you think really plays well with, especially where you're doing like this FMV type game? I mean, I guess I've, I mean, for me, like it's perverse, right? Because I've come from a world where it's all CGI. So the easiest thing... Uh, you know, always make this point, like the easiest thing to do in a video game is to like blow up a planet or, you know, explode a spaceship. Like we can do, we can do big things, right? We can see a, a mountain in the distance and we can have you walk all the way up to it. We could plant a million trees procedurally. So we can do all this stuff that's big and exciting. Um, but if you want to see a character cry, right, or, 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 something subtler than that. Like if you want to see a character have a bittersweet look on their face as they wistfully remember their childhood or whatever, like that is the hardest thing, the most expensive thing that you can do in a video game. And so I think for me, when I jumped over to this way of doing things, I'm kind of swimming against the tide um, in that, you know, there's, I'm, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna be fighting a losing battle if I start trying to do CGI things or start trying to do more fantastical things, because because it's easier to do those the old-fashioned way and actually have that be, you know, uh, CGI in 3D. So I think I've been, you know, playing around where, you know, for me the thing is is the faces and the characters, and for me the exciting thing is setting stories in in reasonably you know in contemporary realistic situations you know the kinds of situations and characters that in a traditional video game would not get any purchase i mean this was again with that initial decision to go make her story like that partly came from uh you know i'd pitched big publishers the idea of doing a murder mystery detective police procedural a lot and they always said no and I would always say, but like in every other medium, these things are huge, right? If you have a TV station, you're going to have some kind of cop or mystery, you know, crime show. If you're a book publisher, you're going to have a whole bunch of detective stories and mystery thrillers. You know, it's 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 evergreen. Like this is a genre which has a huge mainstream appeal. So I would always question, like, why is there not more of this in video games? And the publishers would always be like, nah, it just doesn't work in video games. And if, if you interrogated it, it, it did come down to these are stories that, you know, take place generally in the real world uh, and, and concern characters and character interactions and lots of kind of dialogue and interpersonal relationships. And these were things that, you know, game tech has always struggled with. Um, so, you know, I think that, um, you know, for me was pushing against you know the tradition of well in, in a video game you're a superhero usually right you're someone that can jump higher run faster shoot better than most people and we're giving you this fantasy and we're letting you 
do these fantastical magical things. Um, and so for me, you know, I think the discovery of FMV was partly a way of exploring things that are more kind of human scale. That's a very, very, I think, very interesting way. So before we go, there's one other thing I wanted to touch on, and specifically for Immortality, I think more than your other project, is, so what I've been hearing people talk about a lot is, especially with, like, a film background, is that the editing is a very interesting thing. And this one, because, like, obviously you're kind of, like, re-going through these these films and going through them. And a lot of editors have been here talking about being, like, it felt almost, like, too real, like you're in editing editing software, or, like, you're actually doing work if you're an editor. I'm kind of curious how did that balance come through, kind of, like, when you're going through this process of, like, how people are going to scrub through the film and the clips and stuff. Like, did you have just, like, sit down with, like, editors or think about you at past doing any editing of work or like how did that kind of come through so because like that's a comment i think that like all of them are like this feels really real almost in that specific way that was definitely a goal was me knowing how much fun it is to be sat in an editing room and just have all this footage in front of you and and be obsessive about it right like frame going frame by frame to pick the best performance or find the point to cut like that is inherently for me a, a fun experience of just really deeply appreciating the performance and kind of analyzing the film and just getting to appreciate, you know, the, the cliche of, of uh, you know, a movie is live 24 frames a second or whatever, but it's, you know, you got these 24 beautiful still images per second and really getting to appreciate them is something that the editor gets to do. And when you go see a movie, you don't, right? It, it flies over your head, even if you're watching the greatest work of art. Um, and so definitely the objective here was like, give people that experience. I want people to feel what it's like to be sat in the room surrounded by all this footage. Um, at the same time, we, we kind of wanted to explore this idea of like making... Of, of the core, the core thing of a movie is the cut, right? The the thing that makes movies work is the cut, and and that is the you know the core of that art form is the ability to show a series of images and then juxtapose them, you know, cut time and space and tell your story. Like that's the the power you have as a movie director. So we wanted to make the cut part of the game mechanic, and and that's your superpower, right? Like if uh, you know. Th- most video games, you're like, well, what does your character do? What's their weapon? What's their superpower? And it's like, well, this is a game where your superpower is, is the, the edit gun, right? You can fire this gun and make an edit happen. So we, we kind of thought about that. So we didn't want to create, like, we didn't want to just create final cut the game. Right. And I think there is, you know, there is a, an amount of work that you do as an editor that is slightly tedious, that is prosaic. And as well, like, to make the cut feel magical, it was clear to us that like having you choose A and B, choose, you know, start here, cut to here, like you're kind of, you're taking the magic out of it because you're, you're seeing it dead on the, the, the page or whatever. But so when we came up with this idea of like, well, we'll give the player all of the agency and power of saying, you can stop this at any point, pick a frame, click on a thing, and we will then make this match cut to another piece. So like that is extremely powerful for the player, has a lot of expressivity and agency to it. But then the magic will happen because the game will then decide where to take you. 
So it will be surprising and unexpected. And sometimes it will create beautiful moments of incredible synergy or surprise. Sometimes it might be a little bit more mundane, um, but, you know, that's how game mechanics work. But for us, that was exciting of, like, creating something which gave you the perspective of the editor, but still allowed you to have some of the magic of actually experiencing a piece of, of, of filmmaking or what have you. Um, and, and yeah, and that was, that was always the thing we came back to was as well, like, and, and with all my games, I've always tried to have this balance of giving you like a simple tool or a simple toolkit and not, Oh, like not giving you, so much ability to organize or arrange that you can get lost in that or that like trying to keep it simple enough that there is some like effort or friction involved and so here it was like keeping it as simple as possible so that we're not you know you're not having to do too much busy work but at the same time like the the organization is pretty simple. Everything is stuck on this giant grid, so you're still kind of having to move around and jump around the footage. And it was it was always trying to give you this sense. Like the the, the idea was, imagine if we led you into a dark editing suite, sat you down, and then a guy comes in and dumps twenty cans of film on the desk and goes, "Don't know what's in here, but there's some cool lost movies or something." Right, like you're going to have to explore them. It's a little bit like someone dumping a jigsaw puzzle on the table and all the pieces just fall. And then, and there's a little bit of work of like organizing everything, right? Of going, Oh, these are all the bits of sky. These all have blue in them. Oh, these are the corner pieces. That's going to be useful. That's going to bed this in. And so there's this element of, of, of initially being overwhelmed, but slowly kind of putting pieces together and, and organizing it. And a lot of that is, you know, very personal and subjective and how you might go about that. Um, so yeah, that was, it was definitely, I, we want you to feel some of what it feels like to be an editor. We want you to have that sensation, that relationship to the media, to the film, um, whilst also giving you the sense of surprise and magic um, as you slowly kind of build up the picture. Perfect. Well, I think that's a beautiful way to end this and give you back the rest of your day. So again, the game is Immortality. You could currently find it, I know, on Steam, soon to be on your mobile phones, on Netflix app. Uh, you are Sam Barlow. Thank you again for the time. I know we could find you at ha- uh, you find the team at Half Mermaid on, on Twitter. Um, anywhere else we should be sending people to go check out the game or... Uh, more to more, learn more about it. I think you nailed it. Yeah, it's on uh, it's on Steam. It's on GOG. It is on Xbox. Um, it's on the Xbox Game Pass. Uh, if you want to play it for free, if you have that, which is it's like a double edged sword for me. I'm like, I there was there was one uh, one popular website that ran the headline. They gave us uh, their highest score of 2022, but the headline was. You can play 2022's highest rated game for free right now. I was like, thank you for that framing. That's such it's a cool. Nice. Like, it's cool people get to play it, uh, which is the main thing. Um, but yeah, you can get it on, on Steam, on GOG, on uh, Xbox, um, and yeah, coming soon to Netflix games. So people will be able to play it on Android and uh, iPhones and iPads, uh, which is pretty exciting. Like, uh, no one's seen that version yet, but it's, it's the whole game. And. Um, the cool thing is the the match cut mechanic on phones. You do like a little pinch zoom, then it zooms in and does the match cut, and it it gets to the point where I can't watch 
a video on my phone now because I just keep trying to keep trying to zoom in on people's faces with my fingers, and I'm like, ah, That's damn really it! Interesting. I got I gotta ask just because because before we we'll let you go, then um, so the, obviously you said the pinch zoom, the the fun change that. Is it possible to get that that version on like a? Because I have like a monitor that's like touch screen. Because I think it'd be really fun to kind of play with those new controls, but like on my like computer at the same time. Not yeah, not currently. Like yeah, there's there's we we're not crossing the streams. It's like we have yeah, there's like console and then there's PC and then there's mobile and obviously PC you can play with a controller, which is like a fun way to play. But um, yeah, it's like trying to keep everything in its own little thing. But you can, you know, you'll, if you have Netflix, you'll be able to play it for free, so you can go try that version out. So Perfect. Cool. Well, Sam, I want to say thank you again for taking time out of your day to, to come talk to us here, and I am excited for more people to go check it out. And again, again, apparently all you got to do is have Game Pass, which I'm pretty sure almost everyone in the world does, or pretty soon just have Netflix, which everyone else in the world has. So I'm pretty sure you have almost no excuse to not go check out this game. Yeah. That's the, yeah, that's the magic. It's like, I mean, ultimately at some point I have to pay my rent, but, you know, really you just want as many people as possible to play it. And no one should ever have to play for a video game, right? We should have to pay for anything. <laughs> if the government had their, their shit together, we would, we would all just get, you know, free video games and free food. But, so I just want people to go play it. But it's, it's definitely interesting uh, to see you kind of expect that people who get a thing for free would be the, the happiest customers. But oftentimes, like, if you haven't paid for a thing, you're less inclined to make the effort, right, to meet the game halfway. So sometimes it's weird. It's like if you do a deep sale on Steam or something, sometimes you'll get people playing the game that, uh, you know, are less inclined to want to like the game. Uh, but, yeah, it's been exciting, uh, obviously, this is a game with deep mysteries. So getting as many people to play it, so there's as many other people that they can talk to about it is, uh, is kind of key to success. So go out there, play it and enjoy it. Perfect. Well, again, thank you. And everyone go check it out. The SW show and all of its affiliate podcasts are podcast by me, Mike Maroney and AJ Losey by sometimes by contributors, including Corey King. You can follow the SWW Show on social media at the SWW Show, or sooner or later, you go to patreon.com slash SWW to help us out. Thank you. We hope you enjoy the rest of your day.